Well, good morning and happy Labor Day weekend. Looks like there's a few of our folks in our body who are Labor Daying somewhere else. And, uh, but the committed and faithful are here this morning, no doubt. And we know who you are. So turn with me, if you would, to Jonah chapter 3 as we continue to teach, teach through this Old Testament narrative. And let me just take a minute to sort of remind us of where we are in this book. We saw in chapter 1, 4 through 16, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and told him to go to Nineveh to speak out against its evil. But Jonah ran from the Lord, flee from the Lord, from the presence of the Lord he was trying to run. So we know at this point in the story, at the, verse 16, that Joseph is, del- not Joseph, Jonah, first cousins, starts with the same letter, same second letter. Um, Jonah is delusional. Would you not agree? Like to try to run from the very presence of the Lord, he is not in his right mind. And then last week we saw that Jonah was thrown overboard, the sea calmed down, and his life was saved via a great fish, it says. We saw last week, though, that he still doesn't get it. While in the fish motel or the belly of the well, Jonah prays this prayer that Monty called a fishy prayer because it seems like at first glance it's a prayer of repentance and yet as Monty dug down in it in in a, in a layer or two, it didn't take much for us to see that Jonah didn't get it. He's made statements like, I've been thrown into Sheol. You, God, threw me in the Sheol. No, 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 no. Jonah is in the place that Jonah's in because of Jonah, not God. And so Jonah is starting to paint this narrative while in the fish motel that he is good, God is bad. And so he's still delusional at the end of our text last week. Matter of fact, at this point, it is nearly indescribable of how out of touch Jonah is with reality. Like we may use phrases at this point to describe Jonah, phrases like blind as a bat, out, of lunch, out to lunch, nut as a fruitcake. Matter of fact, when I read those first two chapters, my innate sort of gut reaction is this, this, this oh, Jonah. You're so dumb. What are you doing? You know, this frustration with Jonah where he's running from God and God is so gracious not to let him drown in the sea, saved him with a well, put him here three days to sort of get his head to him, vomited him up on the beach. He's still alive and he doesn't get it, Jonah. Do you feel that with me a little bit? Okay. Maybe not quite as passionately, but... In my head, I'm just like, what is wrong with you, Jonah? But as we stand back and take this sober look, long look at Jonah, the bottom line is this. It is so sad for him as a human, made in the very image of God, to be in such a dark place, not only of rebellion against his creator, but to be actually blaming his creator for his predicament. And what makes that even worse is that Jonah is one of God's people. Jonah has been called to be a mouthpiece for God to those who are sinners and given this title and responsibility and role as a prophet. 
So the question is, how will God deal with this wayward sinner? Now, if you think Jonah's blindness, after all this happened to him, is sort of indescribable, wait to what you see happens this morning of God's response to him to answer that question because that's indescribable times a thousand. One writer said, it's mind-boggling. That's why I use those exact words in your notes. It's mind-boggling what God does in his response to Jonah this morning. But before we go there, let me be straight with you this morning. Do I have your permission to be a little blunt? Answer is yes, okay. God fully intends, here's what he wants. He fully intends for us, the readers of Jonah, to see this messed up life of Jonah, this hard heart of Jonah as a mirror that also reflects our messed up life and hard heart. That we are to read Jonah and maybe initially feel that frustration that I spoke of, but then to immediately think, that's me. I do that too. I run from God when his word speaks to me very clearly. And when he comes after me, I sort of spiritually parse my life and act as if I'm okay and it's everyone else's problem. That's what we're supposed to do when we read Jonah. I did think this morning, if there's ever a time in the Old Testament to seriously consider Jesus' words in Matthew 7, it is today. These words that say, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly. Because the bottom line here is this. Unless we see the indescribable nature of our sin, we will not appreciate and gravitate toward this beautiful, indescribable response to us that God brings to our sin. And so Jonah 3, 1 through 5 is simply this. It is an indescribable recommissioning of Jonah in spite of Jonah. So let's look at it. Roman number one in your notes says the mind-boggling, astonishing, patient, persistent pursuit of Jonah. Let's read verses one and two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So here's what happens. At the beginning of chapter three, the narrative or the plot of the narrative actually rewinds and starts over again from chapter one. Let me show you very clearly. If you just glance over a page, verse 1-1 of Jonah, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then in chapter three, one, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. So we got a rewind, a reset, a start over. The author's very intentional here using this, basically the same words to let us know, take two. Now, did you notice, did you see it? Did you see God's response to Jonah after Jonah fled from God and blaming God for his circumstances? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. When I read that this week, I thought about 
Jen and I as young parents. We got hold of some parenting information um, that taught very strongly about first-time obedience. And you and I know there's nothing wrong with first-time obedience. Many of us would be in a lot better shape if we learned that quicker and earlier, will we not? The problem is that Jen and I were so young and immature and dumb as parents that we took this principle of, of call of first-time obedience, which is good, and we turned it into this hammer, this truth. And the war was on because just like Jen and I, we don't get it the first time. Guess what? Our kids didn't either. And so we had this conflict. We, this, it caused this, us to fail to have this mindset that parenting is sort of playing the long game. And we failed to grab their hearts while demanding their obedience, which calls rules without relationship equals rebellion. You get that. And so... Here we have God calling Jonah to first-time obedience, but it says very clearly God does not parent. God knows what his rebellious children need, and that is for the word of the Lord to come a second time. When I thought about that, I thought it is incredible and certainly indescribable that a holy, sovereign, righteous God would ever stoop to speak to us more than once after he has spoken to us clearly the first time. At the core, though, this is the gospel message, this phenomenal, joyful message that said his mercies are new every morning. A God who at the epicenter of his character is overflowing with forgiveness and patience and grace, that he, through his word, will come again and again and again and again and again and again, not because we deserve it, because of who he is at his core, God of indescribable grace. And if that wasn't who he was, there would be no hope for you and I because here's the reality. There's not one person in this room or for the history of Christendom that God has come to them one time and they got it. Yes, sir. Aye, aye, Captain. True? Just think about your life and your journey. Just close your eyes for 15 seconds and say, how many times did the word of the God Come to me again. I didn't get it and it came again. And I didn't get it and it came again. Hmm. I took a little exercise this week. And literally I could preach the rest of the sermon quoting these things. But I thought I need to do a little internal work here. And just go back and think about God's coming to me with his word again and again and again. I thought back to the first time I heard the gospel at Camp Carraway at age nine, and it did something in me. But I didn't come to Christ, and the Lord brought his word again. And then several times through middle school and high school, through coaches and my uncle, I heard the gospel, but I didn't respond the Lord brought his word again and again. And then my 
freshman year in college, watching a film in the dark with my teammates on the football team. There was a film about NFL players giving their testimonies about knowing Christ. And there was something, there was something happening in me in the dark. And I refused. And then finally, finally, I came to Christ beginning of my sophomore year through Joe Strader, Strader with crew. But it wasn't over. The Lord kept bringing the word again and again. I remember being a young Christian arguing with someone that nothing was wrong with abortion. Like making that an argument. And the Lord brought his word again. Oh, how my mind has changed toward that subject. I remember early on, I was trying to witness to my non-Christian roommate, and we got in a fight over his stinky socks. That was a great, that was a great witness. <laughs> and I, I think most remarkable is I felt bad about that, whereas before Christ, I would have bragged about it. But the Lord brought his word again early on in our marriage, raging on my wife and justifying it and sitting in my chair in this sort of emotional stupor of what happened? Why do I do that? Why does that happen? And the Lord kept bringing his word again and again to work me through that. When I felt as my lust at times would be the end of me, when my parenting was a complete failure, so many episodes, no time to describe. When, when I was so confused and discouraged in my marriage and the word of the Lord came again and again. And he came through his written word. He came through the words of men and women. He came through circumstances. He came through his people. He came through his spirit, but he did come. And I'm not the man I was, and I'm not the man I'm going to be, but I'm telling you, I'm not the man I was, because his word comes again and again and again. I saw this video I want to share with you today. You know, the Bible calls us sheep, and Jesus is the shepherd, <laughs> and I do believe it's a great picture a great picture of how we sin, we run from God, we jump in our hole of shame or condemnation. We have no idea why we do, what we do, why we do it, and the Lord comes again. Take a look. <laughs> Increíble. Pobrecita. Voy a ser famoso. Anda, mírala. Así nace una oveja, el milagro de la vida. Eso se lo pones. Te lo juro que la gente joven no lo sabe. Así nace una oveja, una oveja de tierra. No es nuestra esta oveja. No es. Isn't that a great picture, right? I'm thankful he doesn't leave us in those dark places. So I don't know where you are this morning. You may be a mess. Your life may be full of difficulties, mostly of your own choices. You keep running from God, blaming others. There are hidden secrets that are absolutely eating your lunch and destroying you. 
your heart is hard and apathetic toward God's, the commands of God and the purposes of God, you're discouraged, maybe despairing, brokenhearted, you get it wrong so often is what goes through your head. You say, I love you, Lord. And then you act on a daily basis that you are in deep love with yourself. But there's one thing I do know for sure. Wherever you're at, then the word of the Lord comes for the second time and the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time and on and on. And at some point, what God does by continually pulling us out of that hole, coming again and again, we finally turn to him and we say, I have nothing to offer. I turn to you and we experience this mind-boggling, astonishing, patient, persistent God who is in pursuit of us. And our hearts are affected by it. Came across a hymn that I had not seen uh, by Charles Wesley called Depth of Mercy. It goes like this. Depth of mercy can there be mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear me the chief of sinners spare? I have long withstood his grace Long provoked him to his face, would not listen to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Still for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. Now my Father's mercies move, justice lingers into love. Now incline me to repent, let now my sins lament. The mind-boggling, astonishing, patient, persistent pursuit of Jonah by this incredible God. Secondly, in our text, is the mind-boggling, overwhelming, intimidating, scary task that is given to Jonah. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. As we look at this text, the sharpest contrast that we've seen so far in these first few chapters of Jonah comes with verse 1-3 and 3-3. In verse 1-3 of Jonah, it says, But Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And in verse 3-3, we see this contrast. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So when I read that, I think, whoo, finally Jonah got it, right? Like it took a lot. It took whale's belly, seaweed, vomiting. I mean, it took a storm, it, crazy things. But Jonah got it because he's doing what the Lord told him to do. I got bad news for you. You're going to have to trust me. I can't preach chapter 4. We're going to get there. But I can promise you and assure you that Jonah does not get it based on how he responds in chapter 4. Jonah is just like us in some ways that God has to continue to sort of plumb the different levels and depths and layers as he makes Jonah understands the way of God and God's way in the world. And Jonah doesn't get it yet. 
And in the middle of verse 3, there's actually a break that gives us a little more information here about Nineveh that's going to help us understand what's happening. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. It literally reads in the Hebrew, which can tend to be a little more specific in nature, it literally reads, now Nineveh was a large city to God, or Nineveh was a large city for God. The author seems to want us to know that this city, although a pagan city, although an evil city, belongs to the one true God of the universe, that this city, Nineveh, is God's city, and he loves her. The fact that the God of Israel owns every city of every nation is a fact that permeates all of Scripture. We know that. And we know that God is a God who has promised to reach every nation, every tribe, every tongue, in every race. And this truth, this one's in context here, has already come off of Jonah's lips in verse 1-9 when Jonah said, I am a Hebrew, the Lord, the God of heaven, who may see and land. Jonah is declaring there that, John, that God really does own it all, even as Monty spoke of that this morning. But here's what this shows us. It shows us the stark difference between Jonah and God. Jonah loves those who are like him. Jonah obeys here. He does go to Nineveh, but he does so out of duty and because maybe the best way I can put it is the fish motel sort of slapped him upside the head and just like, ugh, I, throw me in the sea and God still gets me. I can't get away, so I'll just do it, dadgummit. Jonah is at least compliant. He's doing what God wants him to do, but his heart has not been affected. His heart does not love the sinner like God loves the sinner. His heart loves himself. He loves those who look like him and think like him and believe like him. In some ways, it's this perverted nationalism that only people like me deserve the love of Yahweh. He has once again failed to mesh his heart with God's heart. Think with me in this context of Luke 15, the very popular uh, story of the prodigal son and the elder brother and the father. The prodigal son, Jonah went to Tarshish here as the prodigal. He ran from God because of his great self-love to do what he pleases when he pleases. So, so Jonah has this prodigal side to him. But now here he goes to Nineveh as the elder brother. He is doing the right thing, but not because of his love for the father. In chapter 4, here's what we'll see. That this dutiful, self-righteous obedience has a very short shelf life. It doesn't work for Jonah and doesn't work long time for us. Only this grace motivated, I didn't deserve it, and yet God comes again and again and again where it affects our heart in such a way brings long-term obedience. But, I want to put a but here. Before we're too hard on Jonah, let's remember this is Nineveh. 
In its time, it was a remarkable city, one of the largest of the world for over 50 years. It was this huge center of commerce that you could go to, and historians say you could literally buy the best of anything in any category. Whatever you wanted, you could get the best in Nineveh, and it came from all around the world. It was a political capital, center of the Asian empire, the power of pomp and circumstance, more than one could imagine. It was also a city of great evil, we know that. We talked about that earlier, oppression and injustice. It was a place where people were obsessed and addicted to sexual pleasure. And there was no pleasure known to man, historians say, that was not pursued by everyone passionately. Murder from the military and from the men on the street was rampant. Someone looked at you wrong, you kill them, and no one does a thing. Complete chaos. So when I look at this and I think of Jonah, I think, how in the world is one man going to evangelize this exceedingly great city? The size of the task seems a little undoable, does it not? But then you add the reality that Jonah is a little known prophet from a small town north of Nazareth. He is from a foreign country, a country that the Ninevites despise. Going to a city like Nineveh from a foreign culture is going to bring a message from a foreign God. And the message is not God loves you. The message is, is turn from your evil or God's going to destroy you. The message is judgment. So Jonah, he gets shot out of the mouth of the well. He walks to the city, still smelling like fresh tuna. He starts to talk. He has no technology, no microphones, no TVs. He doesn't have this, this precursor to his arrival of this evangelistic marketing campaign sort of prepare the way and soften the hearts and minds that Jonah's coming, evangelist Jonah. He has none of that. He's got to be overwhelmed with the futility of the task. What in the world was God thinking? What would cause these people to listen to me? If we are honest with ourselves, I can't imagine many of you not have ever thinking about that yourself. With your friends, with your family, your crazy uncle, family members, right? with your neighbors, your co-workers, what is it that would make them, knowing who they are, listen to me about Christ? It's certainly not my life. There's plenty of struggles here. There's plenty of issues here. There's plenty of areas of growth that I'm, I'm not your poster boy example. What would make them listen? In some ways, all God has asked Jonah to do is speak. Now let's see what happens. And what happens is the mind-boggling, glorious, magnificent, gracious power of God through Jonah. Look at verses 5 and 6. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
Before we dig into these texts, I want to ask you a few questions. Are you willing to go to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your family members, to your friends, to that person on the plane sitting beside you? Do you really believe that through you, God can do the things that he wants and intends to do even in spite of you, just like he's doing with Jonah, even in spite of Jonah? Here's what I think happens. A lot of us, we certainly have not forsaken our faith in Christ. We love Christ. We love his church. We love the scriptures. But I do think we've boxed ourselves into this place of what I want to call redemptive inactivity or captivity. We love the church, but in our hearts, there is something that paralyzes us. When we think about going and doing what God says do, which is to speak of his grandeur and his glory in Jesus, there's something that paralyzes us when we think about going to those who do not know God. And I think one of the top two or three things that paralyzes us is an inaccurate assessment of our job and God's job. Let me put, say it again, an inaccurate assessment of our job and God's job. And to answer that question, what is our job and God's job, verse 5 unpacks it for us. I love verse 5. As I read that this week, I thought it is one of the most understated and yet glorious stated scriptures of the awesome power of God in the whole Old Testament. Simple but profound at a high level. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. The kind of people that I just described a few minutes ago, driven by power, sick pleasure, people who love their sin and love to encourage others to sin, they typically don't believe God, right? Unless... Give me a little drum roll. Unless God acts on their behalf, this powerful action of God opens their eyes and heart. So what Jonah has missed and what we, I think, miss is this scenario was never Jonah, this little tiny country prophet, Versus this huge evil city of Nineveh. That was never the duel. That was never the, the fight, the battle. It was always this God of glory and his power and mercy. A God that is so great and indescribable. Versus this little city of Nineveh that he loved. If we know anything, we know that God loves sinners. We know that because he loved me and you. And when he and his grace acted upon our hard hearts, our response was the same as the Ninevites. We believed in the Lord Jesus. If we get this truth in verse 5, here's the deal. It, will, it literally could transform our very lives and perspectives. Here's the truth. 
Your call from God is not to accomplish the task. Your call from God is to obey and God will accomplish the task. The fact of the matter is you and I cannot turn a heart toward God. We cannot create belief. We can't make a rebellious sinner stop sinning. Our job is to go and speak about the great and glorious God we know and watch God accomplish the task in his way and in his time. Now, I don't know what it does for you emotionally or from that paralyzed state, but for me, it takes this huge weight off my shoulder. <laughs> Woo! Because the task is intimidating. But my job is simply to speak. And watch God, and talk about this great God of grace and patience towards sinful people, and watch him melt the heart of the most incredible sinner. Well, what happens when Jonah does that? Look what verse 6 says. The voice of this little unknown foreign country prophet is used by God to turn the city of Nineveh to God. It says literally, from the greatest of them to the least of them, from the power brokers to the poorest of the poor on the streets of Nineveh, belief in Yahweh is running rampant in this city known particularly for its sin. It, it, it says two things here to give us a little more details that it's true belief. It says they call for a fast and to put on sackcloth. So what is fasting? At this very foundational level, fasting is an intentional self-denial for the purpose of communion with God. What a great picture of turning from the pleasures of this world to the greatest pleasure in the world, God himself. And then to put on sackcloth. It is a, a clothing, if you would, of mourning and grief put on at a loved one's death. So these people who once found pleasure in their sin are now weeping and grieving and crying and mourning over their sin. It is a picture of them dying to their sin for the first time, a picture of true repentance. And here's the deal. It's not dutiful. Something has affected their hearts. And what has affected their hearts is simply God using a sinner like Jonah to communicate his greatness. And then God does his thing. See, there's really, there's more than two, but this morning, just for our focus, there's, I'll say there's two things going on this morning. One is God loves sinners and he's using Jonah, in spite of Jonah, to speak out to reach a heathen, pagan, Gentile nation. No doubt we see that. But in the process, God is also loving Jonah, although it's a strange love. It's a hard love. He is absolutely changing Jonah or attempting to. Do you see the dual thing going on here? He's trying to get Jonah's heart to mesh with God's and God's to mesh with Jonah so that they see alike, feel alike, act alike, speak alike. And isn't that what he wants to do with us? To conform in us into his own image. So, the question is, will we go? Where will we go? Will we speak? 
We won't go and speak unless we understand how gracious and merciful and mind-boggling the pursuit of us in God through Christ is. When we get that, Thomas Jefferson once said, when the heart is right, the feet are swift. We could say, when the heart is right, the lips move fast. So take a minute and ask yourself a question this morning, so what? And maybe use those three points in your outline. What application do you need to make? Do you need to see this morning? Take a minute to ask the question, so what?